This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kenny, and I am really excited to be here with you guys back in the saddle for uh, this podcast. Now, if you've been noticing, hopefully you've noticed, uh, the last couple months really have been pretty slow for the podcast. Uh, I think the last episode was about three weeks ago, and the last true like new topic has been longer than that. Uh, so I wanted to kick things off with a little bit of an apology and a little bit of an explanation for that. And then we'll talk a little about where I see the podcast going in the future and then jump into today's topic, which we're going to be talking about uh, Iran and the, all the stuff that's been going on there over the last few weeks, which is crazy and ridiculous and probably could be four or five episodes by itself, but we're going to try and cram it all into one episode and just kind of give you an overview about what's been going on there. Uh, but for starters, uh, just why has this podcast been kind of put on the back burner lately? Uh, a couple months ago, I started a brand new job, uh, which has been really exciting and everything, but it's also keeping me really busy. Um, and that's been just time consuming, uh, which is again, in a very good way, but it's kind of had me or forced me to adjust kind of when I record, when I edit, uh, and then trying to fit everything else life-wise around this new new position. Uh, it's it's a great position with a really good company. I'm excited about it, but it's it has kind of changed the rest of my life around it a little bit. Uh, in addition to that, we just with the holidays going on, things got really busy. I actually had uh, some, some family issues. My grandfather passed away over the holidays. And so just with everything going on, kind of the podcast was one of the things that kind of slipped through the cracks. Uh, but I do hope to be getting back to it. Uh, I don't know yet if this is going to be, if I'm going to push it all the way back to being, you know, once a week like it was before, or if it'll be, you know, still regular, but maybe every other week or something. I haven't quite settled on that. But don't fear, I do still plan to keep doing the podcast, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, going forward, I, I do think it will be a little bit more on the back burner, given just everything else that's been going on lately, uh, particularly with the job and just time, you know, life and things kind of get in the way. So I do think it will be taking a little bit more of a backseat, um, but I, I really do plan to continue this, and I'm excited about that. Uh, so let's go ahead and just talk about Iran for a little bit and kind of what's been going on there. If you've been following the news, you know that uh, Iran has been an absolute mess lately. And I wanted to touch a little bit on, actually, we're going to take a step back. Let's, let's step back and talk about Iran itself, kind of who they are, where they come from, like what, what's their role in the international community. And then we'll kind of jump into the current events after that. So Iran is actually a fairly large country, uh, both by... Like physical size in terms of area, square mileage, and also population. It's in the top 20 in the world in terms of population. It's got a little over 82 million people who live there. Um, it's the second largest country by size in the Middle East. Again, top 20 in the world. So it, it's, it's a fairly large country overall. A lot of times people tend to think of it as being much smaller than it is, but it's actually quite large. Uh, and it's, its capital city is Tehran. That's T-E-H-R-A-N. It's kind of the political center, the economic center. Uh, it's, it's the largest and most populous city in all of Western Asia. Um, and so they have a fairly large 
influence just given their their size. Now, the one thing that makes them really interesting, at least in my eyes, is that Iran is home to some of the world's oldest civilizations. Uh, actually, the, the country of Iran, you sometimes hear it called Persia. Officially, it's the Islamic Republic of Iran, but Persia, Iran, it's all, all kind of the same thing. But they actually have their roots going back to the fourth millennium uh, BCE with the Elamites. Uh, the Elamite kingdom was, was there. It was kind of eventually unified by the Medes. And it's probably most famous um, historically for being the home of, of King Cyrus the Great. Uh, and his, his uh, empire stretched all the way from like Eastern Europe uh, into the Indus Valley. And the Indus Valley is this kind of area really by the Indus River that kind of runs through where we think of Pakistan now, uh, which actually makes this empire uh, run by Cyrus the Great one of the largest empires in all of history. Uh, now, they did eventually fall to Alexander the Great uh, in the 4th century BCE and kind of got divided up by a bunch of, uh, divided into a bunch of different states at that time. And so then there were some rev rebellions and revolutions, and I'm not going to get into all the details of this because it, it gets kind of technical and there's a, a lot of different steps here. But essentially, in the 15th century, some uh, this native group called the Safavids uh, rose back up and they kind of reestablished what you would consider a unified Iran, kind of rebuilt the national identity there that had been split into quite a few different groups, including uh, several different native kind of Muslim dynasties, the Seljuk Turks and the Mongols were in there, but you also had several Zoroastrian uh, faith-based groups that were there. And so you had kind of a very fractured identity for a long time, but uh, essentially in the 15th century, we kind of reestablished this Iran national identity, uh, and the country converts to Shia Islam formally, and this becomes a really big turning point in the country's history, but also in, in kind of Muslim history as well. Now, Iran quickly becomes one of the most powerful states uh, through like the 1700s or so. Into the 1800s, they get into some conflicts with Russia that kind of change their borders and their territory a fair amount. But throughout this whole period, we're still talking about them as kind of a unified national identity, the same identity that we think of them being today. Now, the 20th century was a pretty big period of upheaval for Iran and, per and Persia, uh, as you might have heard it called back then. And so you get kind of a constitutional monarchy, you get the first legislature put into place in the early 20th century. And then in 1953, you have what's known as the, the 53 Iranian coup d'etat. Um, and this was essentially the overthrow of a prime minister in favor of kind of strengthening the, the monarchy that was in place, who was led by Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. And so this was actually a coup that was, at least in part, depending on who you ask, you know, small part or almost mainly by the UK and the United States. And so this led to more and more of an, an autocratic regime under Pahlavi, and you started to get more and more of a Western influence into Iran. Now, if you get into the 50, late 50s and into the 60s, you actually see Iran undergo what's called the White Revolution. This was not a revolution in the sense of like a rebellion per se, but it was a series of reforms that were passed by Shah Pahlavi uh, lasted up until 1979, and this was things like industrial growth, a lot of land reforms, uh, women's rights actually made a huge step forward during this period, but there were still a lot of undercurrents in Iran of unrest and dissatisfaction with the monarchy, and eventually this leads to the Iranian Revolution. And so this was a huge deal in 1979, 
and this established the, the Islamic Republic of Iran that we know of today. So while there was a national Iranian identity before, 1979 is what really establishes Iran as the country that we know of them today. Now this 1979 Iranian revolution is actually a really huge deal in the Middle East. I've talked about that revolution on this podcast before with some of the the roots in multiple terrorist groups that, have, that arose post-79. They can tie their roots back in some ways to the Iranian revolution and then the uh, around the same time period, the Afghan overthrow of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan as well. And so the, those kind of two big conflicts actually help reshape the Middle East for decades to come. And so long story short with Iran, uh, they have a very, very long history, going back to one of the oldest civilizations really in the world. Uh, but they also are very new in a lot of ways with the Iran that we currently know really only being around for about 40 years. Uh, so they have this kind of weird dichotomy there where being both really old but also really new, um, and a lot of upheaval and just change and instability just over the years. Uh, so more in today's terms, Iran is considered a founding member of the UN. They're part of OPEC. They're part of several other uh, major international organizations. They're considered a, a major regional power. Uh, globally, they're probably what's considered like a middle power, so not quite on the major level, but, but still quite powerful, uh, largely due to its natural gas and oil supply. Uh, Iran actually has the world's largest natural gas supply, and I think they're fourth in oil. Uh, so that gives them a lot of influence on the international stage when it comes to energy and energy security and the economy. On kind of a global historical level, it also has a lot of uh, world heritage sites. It's actually, I think, the 11th or 12th largest in the world when it comes to like the number of world heritage sites. So there's a lot of history there. Uh, it is a very multi-ethnic country uh, in a lot of ways, at least historically, uh, but mostly kind of Persians, uh, the Kurds are really high up there. There's a couple other smaller groups as well. Uh, so they're kind of a pluralistic society with a lot of different ethnic groups, a lot of different linguistic groups, several different religious groups as well. Despite being a, an Islamic Republic, there are several kind of minority religious groups that do exist there as well. And in fact, while their like, constitutionally recognized state religion is Islam, uh, which is I've actually talked about this on previous episodes, but they're considered a 12-er group, or 12-er country, 12-er Shia Islam. Uh, but they do have several constitutionally recognized minorities, uh, including a couple different branches of, of Islam, Hanafis, Shafis, uh, Malikis, and a couple others as well. Uh, they do recognize constitutionally Christianity as a, as a religion, um, kind of the Armenian, Assyrian versions of it, Chaldeans. Uh, they do have some, uh, some Judaism there as well, although it's kind of a small minority. And then you have Zoroastrianism as well, which is kind of a, an ancient faith. Uh, it's one of the oldest, actually I think, it, I'm not sure if it is or if it's one of the oldest continuously practiced religions in the world. So that they have several different minority groups, but, but really they are state theocracy, and they're really one of the only state theocracies in the world, which makes them kind of interesting and unique on that front. Now, the majority of the people in Iran speak Persian, uh, or what you might hear sometimes called Farsi. Uh, it's the official language of the country. Uh, we do see other languages there as well, but Persian is by far the most common language. It's the official language of the country. I think second is Turkish, uh, although a specific variety of Turkish. I think it's Azerbaijani, but don't quote me on that. And then you have other minority languages that kind of run across the region, including Arabic, but also like Armenian and Georgian. 
But they're also very interesting and unique because of the way their government is set up. As I said, they're really one of the only theocracies in the world. They're clearly the most powerful, and depending on how you define it, they may be considered the only true theocracy that exists. But their political system is kind of set up in a, almost like a, like a dual government setup, where you have the secular-ish government of sorts, uh, where they have a democratically elected president, uh, who's currently his name is Hassan Rouhani, but then you also have the like Islamic side of the government, the religious side, which is run by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who's considered the supreme leader of Iran. And so you have these kind of dual governments in Iran, where you have the democratic government, and then you have the theocratic government that kind of operate side by side. Uh, technically, they're supposed to operate in conjunction with one another, but it's it's actually really interesting and, re and unique because if you're say another country and you want to do any sort of political dealings with Iran you need to be very careful who you're talking to um, you know which which side of this and the supreme leader the Ayatollah the religious leader actually is considered you know, the more the more powerful of the two uh, he's the one responsible for kind of uh, making and supervising the various policies and laws of Iran the president on the democratic side has much more limited power in comparison to the religious leader, the, the Ayatollah Khomeini. So while the the president can, and actually is considered the kind of the highest state authority after the supreme leader, and is actually elected by you know voting to a term of four years, etc., they're not really allowed to take office unless the the supreme leader, the religious leader, gives official approval for them to be sworn in, and, and they can actually be d dismissed at any time by the supreme leader. And the president, as I said, it has a lot more limited authority. And in fact, he probably doesn't have full control over really anything as the supreme leader. The religious leader has to give final say on pretty much everything. Uh, but the president does kind of function in this almost like an executive for like signing treaties, signing you know, various international agreements, helping with like budget and things like that. Uh, it can also help appoint some like lower level ministers, although again, they have to get the approval of the Supreme Leader. So, so the president of Iran does not function in the same way that the president of many other countries does because the president of Iran is ultimately subject to the Supreme Leader. And so currently we have President Rouhani, uh, who for, who does like state visits and things? You know, he recently met with with Putin in Russia. He's met with plenty of other countries as well. But ultimately, the real power in Iran lies on the kind of religious government side with the supreme leader and Ayatollah Khomeini. And so that's kind of a, an interesting setup where you have this kind of almost like a dual government uh, that kind of operates together: the religious side and the kind of the democratic side. Now, we're going to go ahead and take a short commercial break, uh, just a minute or so, and then I'm going to jump back in on the other side, and we're going to talk about what Iran has been doing lately, why they've been in the news, and kind of what's been going on between the United States and Iran, and what that might look like going forward. A lot of people have been talking about things like World War III starting out of this, and we'll talk about why that's come up, but uh, also we'll talk a lot about the, the future, potential future, I should say, of the Middle East and and this relationship between the U.S. and Iran, but also with Russia involved, Saudi Arabia, and some of the other countries potentially that may get involved as well. Uh, so just hang with me through the short commercial break, and I'll be back with you guys on the other side to talk current events in Iran. Break. 
All right, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that commercial break. Uh, before the break, we were talking about Iran, but kind of spoke focus on Iran itself. Now I want to get into current events and what's been going on there recently. Uh, so back uh, about almost three weeks ago now, uh, January 3rd, President Trump here in the United States ordered an, a drone strike, uh, targeted. it's called a targeted drone strike in Baghdad, which is a city in Iraq. Uh, and so this strike targeted a specific leader in Iran by the name of Qasem Soleimani, uh, a top Iranian commander. He's probably second overall in terms of power within the Iranian government, probably the second most powerful person behind Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, he was also considered the kind of the right-hand man of Khomeini. And so he was a major general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. Uh, and he had been for about 20 years. Now, the IRGC is a, basically a branch of the Iranian Armed Forces. It's been around since 1779 in the Iranian Revolution. And in particular, the Revolutionary Guard Corps is intended specifically to protect the political system of the, especially the Islamic Republic political system that exists in Iran. Uh, as opposed to, say, the traditional Iranian army, which kind of defends their borders and maintains order and that sort of thing. So the Revolutionary Guard has a more specific role in protecting the Islamic system from interference, from coups, uh, what they call deviant movements within the country. So, so they have a very specific purpose. But they are distinct from the Iranian army. And the reason I say that and make the distinction is because the IRGC has been designated a terrorist organization, actually, by multiple countries, including the United States, actually, but also Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, who view this specific organization uh, within the Iranian armed forces as, as essentially being terrorists, because they're, they're more or less an ideologically driven militia that operates, as I said, kind of distinct from the traditional army that you would think of that like protects the country and that sort of thing. And so Soleimani basically runs this. Uh, he, he was a major general in that and commander of what's called the Quds Force, uh, which was a division specifically de dedicated to like military and clandestine operations overseas, more or less. In fact, you can kind of consider his, his force as kind of a mixture of like the CIA and JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command in the United States. So they, they support a lot of non-state actors in, in other countries, including several terrorist groups, which is partly how they, they, they've gotten listed on several lists as well. But they support you know Hezbollah, Hamas, the Ye Yemeni Houthis, different militia groups. And so this is a unit specifically within that IRGC, and this is the one that was run by Soleimani. Now, Soleimani was uh, popular among a lot of Iranians in some some circles. Uh, many saw him as you know fighting for Iran, fighting for fighting against Iran's enemies. But there are also some pretty strong threads throughout Iran of people who basically see him as a murderer. And in fact, he was personally sanctioned by the Uni the United Nations, the UN, as well as the EU, the European Union. And he personally was designated a terrorist by the United States for some of his actions. He was involved in providing assistance to Hezbollah in Lebanon. He's given uh, assistance to Bashar al-Assad in Syria. He helped to plan uh, Iran's operations in the Syrian civil war, Russian's military intervention there, and frankly has gotten involved around the, the world, really, in quite a few different ways. And I'm not going to get into all of them right now because we could spend a whole episode talking on him specifically. But the point is, 
he was seen as a very powerful, very, very dangerous guy. And in fact, you've, if you've been following on Twitter much recently, you can read through some people talking about him. And one of the general consensus is, is that because of his state-sanctioned power with Iran, he may actually have been considered to be more powerful than even people like um, bin Laden or al-Baghdadi, uh, simply because he had more power behind him that they just didn't have because they didn't have as strong of a state backing as he did. But because of his power and because of the dangerous nature that people assigned to him, he was included on a list of Iranian individuals back in 07 uh, that was sanctioned by the UN. He got again sanctioned in 2011. The U.S. has him on a, a list, or has just had him on a list of you know people who were involved in, in terrorism or proliferation activities and basically forbade any sort of uh, U.S. citizens from doing business with him. But... The reason he's back in the news, obviously, is January 3rd, uh, he died. Uh, and he was killed, actually, by this U.S. drone strike in Iraq. Uh, so he was actually abroad in, in Iraq, not Iran at the time. And so this is something that sent shockwaves pretty much throughout the world. I should mention that this was not something that was new, nor something that was uh, particularly shocking to those who have been paying attention to this and in fact at least two different previous u.s administrations had plans in place to take him out at one point or another but had to back off because of logistics or something else but uh, trump has saw an opportunity i should say his forces saw an opportunity trump gave the approval and so he was taken out but it, this was not something that was like just a trump specific thing this is some he is somebody that has been targeted by the united states through multiple previous administrations and other countries as well now, this is, however, very unique because he is a government official in Iran as well as his more terrorist activities. So because he was a member of the government, this turns it from a targeted strike on an individual into what some people are calling an assassination. And in fact, you'll see a lot of media outlets picked up on that word. Technically speaking, it is not considered to be an assassination, and I will explain why. So you may argue that this is splitting hairs, and I understand if, if that's the way you want to go with this. But the distinction here, actually, I do think makes a difference. And, and the reason it makes a difference is because assassinations are considered technically illegal under both domestic and international law, but a targeted killing is considered a legitimate tactic in any sort of conflict. And so what you call it matters. And so this is why a lot of people have been using the word assassination, because it has connotations behind it. But I would argue it was not an assassination because of his specific role. He's not a political target, right? So assassinations, legally speaking, are killings through some sort of duplicitous means of a protected target. And protected in this context means political. So if the U.S. had gone after the Ayatollah or President Rouhani, absolutely assassination. But because he is a general in a military force that is actively fighting in countries where we've been active as well, like Syria, that makes him a combatant, uh, an individual combatant. Uh, now, granted, he is in a leadership role, not on the ground forces, but he is considered, because of his, his technical role, he would be considered a combatant. And so this is considered a targeted killing, not an assassination on the legal front. And again, that matters for the actual definitions of whether or not the act itself is considered illegal or legal under domestic and international law. Uh, so that that's something we'll start with there. It was not an assassination 
technically speaking. And I understand why people go there because he did have a powerful role in Iran, but because he was not a political figure, but rather a military one, particularly a military one whose forces have been actively engaged in conflicts where the United States has been involved, that is is not considered an assassination. It would be considered a targeted killing, which is technically legal, despite what other people may be arguing. Now, Iran itself has been very upset by this, as you would probably imagine. And, you know, their tensions within the country have been on high alert. Uh, Iran shot some missiles in response at Iraqi bases that were housing U.S. troops. And it's more or less understood at this point that the Iran's response was not really designed to kill. Uh, It was more designed to send a signal send a, um, a message without really trying to escalate things any further. Now, it is, it is a retaliation, but no Americans had any, any deaths in the attacks, which took place overnight, and it really caused no major damage. Uh, and so the thought here is that Iran needed to send a message to show that they don't tolerate this, but really did not want to get into a major conflict with the United States. And so they were able to to launch these missiles as a way to to tell their people, hey, we responded without having to actually tell their people, hey, we're going to war against the most powerful country in the world. And this also kind of, because there were no major casualties, this allows President Trump in the United States to also kind of claim a victory here and say, hey, we took out a major threat on the international stage, suffered very little damage in return, you know, no real casualties, only kind of minor damage to any sort of uh, machinery and, and whatnot, and avoided you know World War III essentially, and so this kind of allows both countries to claim victory in this, both kind of signaling that they really don't want this to go any further. Now I mentioned World War III. Why are people talking about this like World War III? This is actually a reference back to World War One, uh, which if you guys are are unaware, uh, World War One started by a relatively low-level assassination of Franz Ferdinand. He was an archduke at the time. Franz Ferdinand of, of Austria. He was actually kind of the heir, or presumptive, presumptive heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. And this was uh, an assassination that took place. But because of key alliances and things, this assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand started to spiral out of control. And this is actually what, what triggered leading directly into World War I. Basically, Austria-Hungary, after this assassination, issued a, an ultimatum to the Kingdom of Serbia uh, because the assassination was coordinated by a Serb. And the Kingdom of Serbia rejected it. Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, which triggered several different key alliances and basically launched into a continental conflict of World War One, And obviously World War One then kind of leads into World War Two, And so this assassination of a high ranking within the country, but relatively low importance globally, led to the greatest wars the world has ever seen. Deadly, destructive wars. And so people look at this targeted killing of Soleimani, and they see a lot of correlation here. The similarities are there, relatively high level within Iran, doesn't have a ton of like international political power or anything though, and there are a lot of alliances potentially at play here. And this is where you get countries like Russia involved, because Russia is uniquely allied with the country of Iran. 
But you also have you know, Saudi Arabia, who is an enemy of Iran, who would potentially ally with the United States. You have Iraq getting involved in there because Iraq is kind of this country that gets caught in the middle because they are the location of the assassination took place within their country. Um, but they also have kind of a weird alliance with Iran, tension-filled alliance. I mean, obviously, they had the Iran-Iraq war where they fought each other not that long ago. But they are also currently kind of allied with Iran, but they're also kind of allied with the United States in other ways. Uh, and so you have them get caught in the middle. The Arab world kind of starts to take sides here. Shia, Sunni uh, delineations there. But then you also have major military powers that potentially could get involved. And so people look at this and say there are a lot of alliances here that if it's we don't tread very carefully, this could spiral out of control. And again, they point to World War One as that example. I don't think that's likely to happen for a variety of reasons. I think, A, Russia doesn't care enough about this particular uh, leader to get involved on any large-scale level uh, unless a war already broke out. And at that point, they may or may not. But I don't think they care enough to do anything unless it actually already had broken out. They're not likely to be the instigators here. Also, as I said, neither the United States nor Iran really look like they want to go any further at this point. On top of that, and this is where we get into even more current events, Iran is dealing with some domestic problems on the um, like the people front. And the reason is because of one of their responses to this attack is a plane was uh, shot down in Iran airspace. It was a Ukrainian plane that was, I think it was Ukrainian Airlines or something to that effect. And they were shot down in Iranian airspace, killing 176 people. And the official word from Iran is that their air defenses fired basically in mistake. They were on high alert after the missile strikes on Soleimani. And they, so they're basically blaming the United States for putting them on high alert. And then they have now admitted that they are, excuse me, that they took down this Ukrainian plane. Now, this airliner crash, attack, whatever you want to call it, has caused serious domestic strife. While Soleimani did have some popularity among the people, this response shooting down an aircraft of, you know, 176 people, you know, innocents, has really turned the people against the government. And so while we did see some protests and crowds that were pro-Soleimani very early on, and actually at, say, the funeral for it, there were massive crowds that gathered to mourn and actually turned into a bit of a riot. I think several people got hurt, maybe a couple even got killed. But now what we're seeing is the protests have turned and they're very anti-Iran right now, uh, even within Iran. Uh, Iran has a like a news agency called uh, Tasnim. I don't know how you pronounce that. T A S N I M. It's a state-controlled news agency, and they're quoted as saying it was the, the U S. that caused such an incident to take place. And basically, they're blum blaming the United States for raising tensions, and they're saying th that basically is the root cause of this attack on, or this missile that hit the plane. And so they are trying to blame the United States, but within the country what we're seeing is that that is not necessarily believed by the people and so there's we're seeing a lot of anti-iran protests and as i was kind of hinting at earlier this means that iran really has a lot of domestic issues they're trying to deal with and they're not likely to want to try to get into a world war three either so i really think world war three is is not happening uh but it doesn't mean there isn't going to be a lot of implications that take place across the Middle East, relationships that are shifting. And um, in particular, 
I think the big one is what's going to happen with a rock. Or as I said, a rock kind of is in this in-between stage. Uh, and in fact, the Iraqi state officially voted for to kick out U.S. forces from Iraq. And that, that's actually what's been reported in the news. I want to give a little bit of a different perspective on this based on what I know about Iraq. First is that when Iraq made this vote, first thing, uh, parliament doesn't really have any real role in ejecting troops. That's controlled by the prime minister, and so they don't really have any power to do this. Start with that. Uh, secondly, the parliament really didn't even have a quorum. Uh, actually, they did, but just barely have a quorum for session. Uh, quorum meaning that they had enough people for it to even matter. And the reason they had such a low participation rate is because Sunni and Kurdish blocs within the Iraq parliament completely boycotted the session. And they, the reason they boycotted is because they thought it was a stupid vote to begin with. Uh, secondly, thirdly, I forget what number I'm on, the Iraq parliament did not vote on any sort of legal legislation. It was a non-binding resolution. And then lastly, well, I, actually, two more things. Thirdly, or fourthly, again, I forget what number I'm on now, a lot of the reason the parliament members voted as they did or chose not to vote, as I said, some of the Sunni and Kurdish blocs kind of didn't even show up, is because there were several Iranian-backed militia organizations in the area that are basically a threatened to kill those parliament members if they didn't vote to expel. Uh, and so this is something that was definitely playing a role kind of behind the scenes that you don't really see talked about in the news. Uh, but if you really know what you're looking for, you, you can find these, these types of things. There are some of these militia groups that basically put out uh, hits or, or threats against parliament members saying you need to vote this way or else we're going to kill you or kill your family or whatnot. And so the vote ended up being quite a bit different. Bottom line in all of this, kind of my last point, is that the Iraqi parliament vote appears to have been more of a, a face-saving vote because Iran is, is really in this bind and Iraq kind of gets caught in the middle. But ultimately, I think the most probable outcome here of Soleimani's killing is really maybe kind of a low-intensity step-up of Iranian attacks against America forces, and honestly, those missile attacks may be all we get out of it. Iran will never engage in direct warfare against the United States, especially not anytime soon. It is quite likely that we will see proxy war step up uh, in Syria and other places, Yemen. But with Soleimani out, who again was running a lot of the Iranian military, the proxy war will be much weaker. Uh, as I said, Soleimani is a dangerous guy. Depending on who you ask, you could argue he may even be more dangerous than bin Laden, than al-Baghdadi, uh, and he had a lot of power. So taking him out will weaken their, their proxy war abilities. Now, one thing I didn't, I kind of hinted at and didn't really talk about was Soleimani's international connections and international attacks. Again, I talked about how he does have control of this special force that does you know extraterritorial attacks across overseas but he's actually been uh tied to terrorist attacks all around the world thailand india argentina uh, nigeria kenya at least 50 different attempts on of terrorist attacks in the last 20 years and so this is more than just iranian military that he was tied to grant yes that was his primary role but he has been linked to terrorist attacks around the world, uh, either from his forces directly or from funding other sources as well. 
He has been very active in you know Iran and Iraq, uh, fighting against Iraqi Kurdish forces. He has unprecedented autonomy in carrying out attacks. Iran basically gave him carte, carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And he has actually been known to target U.S. military personnel. This is what I was looking at earlier. I didn't really make this as clear as I wanted to about it being a targeted kill and not an assassination. He is a military target and has actively targeted U.S. personnel. Numbers are a little tough to come by, but it's believed that his his network of militant groups has killed hundreds of U.S. citizens and U.S. forces in Iraq and other places across the Middle East. Now, the biggest question that you have is whether or not now is the right time. I think you, you really can't argue that he was in any way undeserving of this. I, I think the U.S. was massively justified in going after, going after him. I think the biggest question is now or wait. And this is where I think you can reasonably disagree if you want to. Uh, I don't think you can disagree that he was a bad guy or that the U.S. wasn't justified, but you can reasonably disagree if this was the right time or the right way to go about it. Personally, I don't mind it. I, I think this is something, as I said, at least two past presidents have wanted to go after him and not been able to. I think you take the opportunity where you can get it. And so I personally don't particularly blame Trump. I don't blame the U.S. military for this specific attack here. Uh, again, I, I totally understand it if you disagree on that. I think there's a lot of different perspectives you can take on this. But his role in terrorist attacks around the world, I think, makes him a very legitimate target. And when, it, when you have somebody like that, you don't have many opportunities. Honestly, I, and I, I don't say this particularly lightly, I've been a critic of, of Donald Trump on this podcast, as well as just in my personal life, for those of you who know me, I'm not a huge fan of his. I do praise him when I think he does something right, and I will criticize him when I think he does something wrong. But I actually think this was a pretty big win for him. Obviously, we're still waiting to see, and so I can reserve the right to change my mind on that if something goes terribly wrong. I don't think he's handled everything particularly well, and I would argue international relations is Trump's weakest point overall. But ultimately, and on the political front, I would argue that international relations is his like weakest uh, part of his his campaign and of his administration, but I would say that this appears to have been a major success, and this is something that I think he can hang he can really hang his hat on internationally, taking out a leader of you know, some militant groups that have killed hundreds of Americans, terrorist who's been designated as a terrorist, his group has been designated as a terrorist, and taking him out while suffering essentially zero casualties, uh, minimal damage, and of avoiding. World War Three, which obviously is a big concern, it actually was a big concern too previously. This is partly why other presidents haven't gone after him. And so, if he manages to do all of this, take out a dangerous person, avoid World War Three, suffer virtually no casualties in return, you know, that's I think you count that as a win. Soleimani has been described as probably the single most powerful operative in the Middle East, and he was very involved in places like Syria and Yemen and uh, fighting in Iraq. And on top of all this, too, we did it in such a way that we really minimized uh, other casualties. There were uh, four other members of what's called the Popular Mobilization Forces, or the PMF, uh, which is a, a kind of a, an Iraqi militia organization. I should say uh, Iraqi-sponsored umbrella organization of a lot of different militia groups. And so the other people that were taken out were also militia members, more or less. Uh, and so we didn't 
take out any, we didn't hurt any civilians in the process, which has been a big crit critique of drone strikes. Uh, this is actually one of the biggest scandals I think you could argue of the Obama administration is that a lot of civilians died in some drone strikes that he orchestrated against against all argue some very bad people. But it's hard to not have secondary casualties in these types of attacks. But we seem to manage to do that. So I think this is something that um, I, we can expect uh, Donald Trump to use in his campaign going forward as we get closer to uh, the election which takes place later this year in November uh, and so I think we will see that but it's also something where I think we have to be very careful and keep a close eye on going forward uh, as there are a lot of people who have talked about that it's going to argue it's going to escalate any sort of conflict in the area uh, it was too risky risk retaliation of war or other attacks uh, and, you know, the comparison to the assassination with World War One, there's a lot of, I'd say, concern, maybe. Maybe that's not quite the right word, that this was too risky. You also have some people, particularly from the UN, uh, some places in Europe, uh, some prime minister, I think the prime minister of, of Russia, and a couple others as well, who have said that the killing of Soleimani is is not a targeted killing. It would be considered an assassination. They're trying to argue that it violates international law. Again, I don't buy that, but we do see some of that reaction. And so I, I think going forward, we will con continue to see reactions like that as well, uh, particularly as we kind of observe the Iranian response to it. As I mentioned, his funeral brought probably tens of thousands of people mourning in the streets. And actually, I ended up finding the numbers on this at the burial procession for him and actually turned into a bit of a riot and a stampede. I ended up killing over 50 people and injuring like 200 people in the process. So we're still kind of waiting to, to see all of the outcomes of this as it kind of trickles down, kind of the domino effect. But I would probably argue that this seems to be fizzling out. Uh, Iran's response by launching ballistic missiles at two U.S. bases in Iraq seems to have been about all we're going to get. It was designed to send a signal uh, to the rest of the world and to the United States, designed basically as a message, but designed also to avoid causing any real casualties. That way, both sides can end up kind of walking away from this, claiming some sort of a victory. The U.S., because they took out a, a top enemy while suffering no casualties, but also Iran being able to say, hey, look, we did retaliate on this. We weren't going to just stand by and do nothing. So I think it looks like it's kind of fizzling out here. I doubt we're likely to see anything beyond this, especially as Iran goes into more and more domestic strife. Uh, but this is something where I think we want to keep a lot of close eye on uh, going forward as well. So places to keep an eye on going forward, just for you guys personally, keep an eye on the protests in Iran. Pay attention to what they're actually talking about, what they're chanting, uh, who they're protesting against. As I said, the protests have kind of shifted against the government. They believe the plane that was taken down was, you know, they look at it as a cover-up. Uh, some of them are chanting things like uh, death to liars. Uh, many of the, like the student groups that are protesting have been more pro-United States. Even some, which is kind of shocking, pro-Israel. The Iranian regime has been called on to resign by some of these. So pay really close attention to the mood and kind of the direction that these protests take over the next couple of weeks. If they continue to escalate, if they kind of die out, who they're protesting against, I think that will tell us more than almost anything about the future of this. 
Uh, but with that, I think we're way over time on what I was planning for this week. So I'm going to go ahead and shut the episode down. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening this week. And I will be back with you guys hopefully shortly. Again, this may not be an every week thing for me anymore uh, with everything else going on. But I do plan to keep doing it. So I'll be back with you guys shortly here on Nutshell Politics. If you're interested in getting in contact with me, my uh, Twitter handle is Justin R underscore Kenny. Please re- reach out to me there. I'd be happy to talk with you more about this or any other topic going forward. Uh, on top of that, you can find me on Facebook. If you're not really a Twitter person, at uh, J. Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I have two mystery novels that are published, one called Precipice and one called Splintered State. You can find both on Amazon. Uh, so, But you can also contact me there for anything related to nutshell politics as well. Again, that's J. Robert Kinney. If you're interested in getting in contact with me for advertising or anything else, support me, support this podcast in any way, please just reach out. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. But until next time, here on Nutshell Politics, my name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. 